Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Greg Wells, and this is my podcast. I'm a scientist, a physiologist, an author, and I love exploring how to live a high-performance life. In my books, my presentations, and this podcast, I am doing my best to translate hard science and powerful experiences into actionable, effective life performance strategies. Using the latest research on the brain and the body, this podcast will show you simple but transformative strategies that boost mental and physical health, advance careers, and upgrade lives. I am committed to changing one life at a time for the better. I want to focus on health, happiness, and performance, and I call my mission the billion-person problem. And I don't kid myself that I'm going to reach a billion people, but that's the dream and the space where my passion, my expertise, and my practices all come together. My passion is to help people live healthier and more impactful lives. My expertise lies in the research that I both try to conduct and engage in for a living, And my practice is devoted to providing evidence-based insights and strategies that make it possible to achieve personal and professional success. And that is what this podcast is all about. I hope that you love the show and it makes a big difference in your life. Let me know what you think on Twitter at Dr. Greg Wells. And without any further delays, let's dive into this episode of the Dr. Greg Wells podcast. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me. It's great to be with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show. Today, I have a great chat with Eric Termunde. That is E-R-I-C-T-E-R-M-U-E-N-D-E. And that is .com if you want to check him out. He's awesome. He is a globally recognized thought leader, author, and international speaker on the future of work and building teams that thrive. He's a co-founder of a company, Now Innovations, and he advises industry-leading organizations, institutions, and associations on future-proofing their teams, talent management, and rehumanizing the workplace. Eric has a deep understanding of the next generation of work and how to attain and retain the right talent. His best-selling book, Rethink Work, has become a must-read for today's leaders and is available wherever you like to get books. He's also spoken at TEDx, BuildX, um, and has consulted with organizations like Coca-Cola, Milk and Global, uh, and he is deeply engaged in doing work that inspires challenges and opens minds to opportunity and doors to growth. He and I had an amazing long conversation about loads of different topics, failure, concentration, focus, creativity. Uh, You'll notice some threads of uh, the conversation that resonate with previous shows that I've done, so clearly there's some universal human truths that are happening uh, and we also dive into yesterday's events around Iron Man, which was a bit of a train wreck for me. Uh, but you'll get a bit more of a sense. Basically, uh, started out, swim was great. Half the bike was awesome. Uh, and it went some mechanical issues around a flat tire. Uh, and then some mechanical issues around my body, my, my right hip, just simply not working well enough to make it uh, a logical choice to do the marathon. And so for the first time, uh, I bailed and did not do the marathon, did not finish. So I'm super frustrated about that right now and a little bit bitter, but trying to take it in stride and to set the stage for the future with smarter training and uh, and doing it at a, a much, much higher level. It, most of the good things that have happened in life have happened after periods of uh, things not going well. So that would be one that did not go well and hopefully setting the stage for the future. And we dive right into it. That's actually the opening of this convo. So without any further delays, uh, let's dive right into this conversation with my good friend, uh, and amazing inspirational leader around the future of work, Eric Termunde. Hey Eric, um, I just decided to click record since you and I were having a great conversation and uh, I didn't want to miss this it. That's what so, it's all about. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, here we go. So yeah, about Ironman and just for everyone um, listening in, I did, uh, well, I started an Ironman yesterday and ended up uh, sucking pretty badly um, on the second half of the ride and then ended up uh, not doing the run because of uh, like just an enormous amount of pain in my hip and my hamstring. So we were just talking about the mindset and how I think that I probably didn't have the same mindset that I had the last time that I was doing Ironman where like last time I was like, I'm finishing, doesn't matter. Uh, whereas this time I went in with some time expectations and 
and other stuff and uh, just wasn't mentally uh, quite where I needed to be going into into the race. So yeah, that's where we that's where we ended. That's where I clicked start. And Man, there's yeah. there's so much to be said for that mindset piece too. I mean, I, I haven't personally completed a, a full iron, but I've done two halves and looking at long trail runs and you know a few grand fondos. And um there there can't be any wavering or variability in the fact that it's just, you know, you gotta head to the office and get the job done. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's it. Hundred percent. I think your body, your your body will determine the time based on the diet, the nutrition, the training that you've put into it. But come the race day, it's kind of out of your hands. It's just head down and and, and get it done. Just and you know, let the results speak for themselves. Uh, yeah, and they did, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, so that that mindset piece. Like, if I look back on the last two that I did, you know, the first one going in, there was no chance I wasn't finishing. Mm-hmm. Um, even in my mind at the time, I'm like, I might die today, but I'm still going to have a go. And because right. uh, that was like a year after I had some heart issues. Uh, right. And then the second time was just a tough day. It was up in Muskoka. Um, but this one, the mindset was a little bit different. Uh, process more outcome, which is which is fair enough. And I'm, I'm you know, not uh, going to go back and say that I have, have any regrets. Like this year was just about training and getting back into a rhythm of being um, – you know, daily fitness and all that sort of thing. And just to sort of test the training. So now I know where the training is. It's not where it needs to mm-hmm. be. We'll just keep going with it. So, yeah. So what, what comes next for you then? Uh, that's a great question. We are currently planning a fairly significant expedition for 2020 to do a, a very big climb. So uh, that's probably the next thing to start getting ready for, which means shifting into running and a lot of weightlifting uh, mm-hmm. just to get, make sure they're like strong and super fit. I also realized, you know, given my hip kind of gave out on that, uh, race yesterday that I'm going to have to do a lot more work on body mechanics and tissue right. quality over the next little while getting older. Of course you need to do that sort of stuff. Uh, so it's just going to be a lot more of a holistic approach to training and really integrating, trying hard to figure out how to integrate world-class training with, you know, crafting a world-class business with, you know, mm-hmm. having a good family life and all those sorts of things. So that's really the game now is trying to master all of those things at the same time while doing like, you know, travel like we do and all that yep. other stuff. But man, like what a, what a fun game to play. I mean, it's, it's so incredible, especially with your knowledge of fitness, business, family, uh, and how you get to craft what comes next. I mean, you, you, you tackle one once in a lifetime accomplishment seems to me on an annual basis <laughs> and and the, your ability to change gears and refocus is is absolutely admirable and it's just it's so fun to watch and follow along right on i appreciate that a lot that makes me feel better right now because i've been beating myself up for the last 24 hours i actually went down to the start line and sat mm-hmm. there and watched people finish Mm-hmm. Just to really burn it into my brain, yeah. how much I absolutely hated stopping. Yeah, and like I've never actually really stopped at anything before that I've started. Uh-huh. So that was a new experience, and I didn't like it. And I liked it even less when I sat on the start line, uh, or sorry, the finish line, and watched other people, uh, you know, get it done. So anyway, I appreciate that thought, and yeah, I, I guess that also gives me a bit of a segue to lead into some of the stuff that you're doing because I think this idea of trying to optimize our lives and integrate work and home and think about the future of how we craft lives for ourselves is I think one of the things that you're really good at. So yeah, as we're beginning to dive into this sort of idea of the future of, of my work, I'd love to just get your, your thoughts. Like, what are you working on these days? Like what's, what's top of mind for you? What are you, what are you seeing? What, what's, what's big in your life at the moment? Oh man. Let's see. Um, I'm working on my second book. I think I'll just keep it as plain and simple as that. I mean, the, the speaking uh, has never been um, more prominent than it is today. I was going to use the word busy, and, and it is busy, but I think busy often carries a negative connotation. It's very active, and, and, mm-hmm. and I couldn't be happier for that. But while this is going on, what's really come up for me is this idea of being present and being intentional. 
Now, mm-hmm. that, I think, over the last few years has become fairly buzzy in that, you know, we like to say that we're present and then we're checking our phones while watching TV and eating dinner at the same time. And the truth is we're, we're not in many cases. I think we're living in this era of continuous distraction to the point that we have adopted this new way of life subconsciously. And, and so I've been doing a lot of research on what's called the conscious thought advantage. And what we've come to realize is that every day, consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously, we make 35,000 decisions from how long we brush our teeth to when I cut you off in this conversation because I want to say something to do I do that last email or wordsmith that extra line in the report. And what we found through 80 papers and research over the past decade is that those who make intentional decisions and create space mentally are the ones that ultimately dictate and are the architects of their future. And when I bring this into the workplace, we often hear about the future of work being this phenomenon of rapid change and innovation and exponential difference and all of these big, scary words that nobody really knows how to tackle. And what we've come to realize is if we, if we address the root of the problem, and that is the ability to give time and space to our thoughts and our decisions, and we are intentional about the decisions that we make, and we make as many conscious decisions as possible, then the future of work or the future of our lives is not something that we just like fall into, or it's not something that just happens to us. It's something that we get to build at almost like a microscopic level. Because if we take ourselves out of autopilot for as many of those 35,000 decisions as possible, then we become the architect of whatever comes next. Because we can't choose or we can't dictate what happens to us in the future. And what's happened in the past is already in the past. But if we're as present as possible for every decision that we're making in the present, then the future is whatever we decide it to be. How do you make that time? Like, how do you create that space in the moment when we are, to use the term that you brought up earlier, people perceive that we are so busy, which mm-hmm. I'm beginning to discover, I think is actually a choice, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily um, a state, although it ends up being a state. Um, like, how do we actually do that? Like, how do we make some space to give us the ability to make better decisions by bringing ourselves back into the moment. It's a huge challenge of mine. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually asking for myself for right here. But sure. Yeah. I think the fastest way to speed up is to actually slow down. And when I look at the numbers today, and, and maybe I'm not talking about you or myself, though I am I unfortunately talking about myself in this case, you know, we're spending upwards of three or four hours a day on our cell phones, 10 hours a day in front of our screens, 26% of our day on email. You know, this doesn't include the 85 times we're checking our phones. It, you know, a study out of University of California suggested that it takes 24 minutes to refocus after being distracted again. And in the world that we're living in today, we're distracted so often that we never actually have the time to focus or to refocus. So, so, so we may go through all day without doing any deep work or being truly focused on the task at hand. And so to be able to make intentional decisions, I think the most important thing that we need to do is to monotask as often as possible and to create that space where we're not doing two things at once and not truly focused on the thing that we're doing that's right in front of us. The other thing that I'll say is, is, is a study that came out of Pew Research, uh, December 2018, suggested that we're living 31 and a half hour days because of the amount of time that we're multitasking, which absolutely baffled me because if we look at the numbers, we're, we're sleeping on average seven hours a night. This is, you know, America will generalize. And if that's true, then we're awake for 17 hours. But then if we look at, if we look at the 17 hours that we're awake, we're doing two things at once for seven and a half of those hours, meaning for 42% of our day, we're multitasking. And I think you and I can both agree that when we're doing two things at once, you're not doing anything all that well because we're not focused really on what the task is in front of us. Yeah, I, I've turned on the screen time feature mm-hmm. on my phone yep. to track. And I did it on, I put it on my computer, my iPad, my phone, and I don't have, I, we got rid of TV, so I don't have one. But I was stunned mm-hmm. at the amount of time that I am spending 
in front of screens. Granted, I work with a computer, so it is what I do to some extent, and that's understandable. But in order for me to do the deep work and to some extent to have the deep relationships and deeply engage with life, I also recognize that it's absolutely crucial to be able to use these things as tools intentionally, but not as habit forming, uh, dopamine driving objects throughout the course of the day. Right. Yeah. You know, someone on LinkedIn, uh, tagged me in something just yesterday or the day before that said, you know, if LinkedIn had an out of office notification that you could put on when you left, would you use it or not? And, and my answer is absolutely not because social media is not a commitment. It's a convenience. And I don't think I should be telling people on social media when I'm away or when I'm here because it should only ever be when it's most convenient, which I think is how phones, cell phones started for us too, right? You used it when you were separated at the mall from your family or, you know, you, you, you needed something, uh, you know, to get out of a situation. And, and, and now with vibration always on or a, a ringtone always on, um, what I like to say is that in a world that's never been so connected, I don't think we've ever been this disconnected before. Can you explain that a little bit? First of all, I totally agree with you around the idea of turning off all your notifications at all times. I've said mm -hmm. that many times on this show. Um, I have no audio notifications on. I turn off my uh, notifications on my computer. I never get dinged mm -hmm. when I'm in meetings and other people's phones go off. It drives me insane because <laughs> it distracts everybody and as you say it takes 20 minutes to get back on task after a distraction so like i'm all all into that but i was just wondering if you could expand upon that that thought a little bit about the connection yet we're you know, more connected than ever but yet more disconnected than ever and i think that's really important for people so I, i'd love to hear a little bit more about that yeah i mean okay let's let's dive into this there, there's a theory uh called buckminster fuller's knowledge doubling curve that, that states before the year 1900, the amount of information that we had access to doubled about every 100 years. And, and to really sort of paint a picture, if you brought someone from the year zero and then plopped them into the year 1000, technologically or in terms of economic evolution, not all that much changed. If you brought someone from the year 1000 to the year 1500, still not all that much would have changed. If you bring someone from the year... 1800 to, to 1900 well we've got a we've got an industrial revolution in place we're looking now at flight we're looking now just the start of vehicles if you brought someone from the year 1900 to the year 2020 the world that we're living in is 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 not even remotely similar to what it was 100 years ago and so, so this theory states that after the year 1900 the amount of information that we had access to doubled uh, at a halved rate so from 1900 to 1950, the amount of information that we had access to doubled, but then it doubled at a half rate again. So from 1950 to 75, it doubled. From 75 to 88, it doubled. From 88 to 93, it doubled again until and to the point now where last year IBM said that the amount of information that we have access to is doubling every 13 months, which is absolutely incredible. 90% of the information on the internet today was put there in the past two years. And as a result of that, we're living in a global village. We've heard this before. We've heard terms like global before, where it's like a glo we're global, but we're still local because we can connect and communicate so easily. But what we're failing to realize while this happens is that the byproduct of this hyperconnectivity is actually a sense of isolation because the deep relationships and the connections that we don't have with people are more prominent than they've ever been before. Harvard Business Review or the BBC or McKinsey now are saying that we're entering what could be considered a loneliness epidemic where 40% of Americans are feeling lonely. Actually, I just read in the National Post last week that scientists are trying to come up with a loneliness pill because loneliness is a bigger epidemic than obesity in America. This is the stuff that we don't see anymore because it's just happening right in front of us and it's blind. And so when I say that we've never been this connected before, it's true, our, our, our technology is connecting us, example, from Toronto, to Vancouver on a podcast in ways that we could have never done 15 years ago. And our ability to focus on the task or probably more importantly, the person in front of us 
is being compromised due to our perceived ability to multitask in ways that we truly can't do. Yeah, I think that that idea of we think that we're multitasking, yet we're really not. We're task switching rapidly, which has a huge cost, both both in terms of energy and also effectiveness, mm-hmm. is problematic. I just bumped into a couple of my friends here. I'm in Mont Tremblant, Quebec, at this event, and I bumped into some friends two days ago. And we were sitting around the table at lunch, and like transparently, I realized that I was having a hard time staying totally focused on the conversation. Mm-hmm my mind was wandering and i'm wondering if that's a, a an effect of you know working in this environment where i am actually accessing any and i'm mindful about not doing that and trying to be as focused as i possibly can right. on my work yet it is it, and it, it it is a challenge for us to stay deeply in that moment so how do we build better relationships how do we deal with this loneliness like i've got two little kids they're coming up into uh, you know ingrid's almost becoming a, a teenager mm-hmm. soon. So like, how do we help the world get more connected, build better communities, uh, and deal with this loneliness epidemic, and help people just feel better more often? <laughs> um, the, the answer, simple question. Well, just but the thing the is, I think there's a simple answer too, and, 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 and I don't think we intentionally choose to make it. Let me give you a quick example before I dive into what I think the answer is. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my, my girlfriend Jill and I were watching a movie. Whatever movie it was, it didn't matter. We were in the living room and I was um, on my phone checking an email. And it was a comedy that we were watching. And something happened on the TV that that Jill thought was really funny. And so sure enough, I got the elbow. She said, Hey, did you see that? And I kind of looked up and I kind of laughed and said, ha, yeah, that was great. But she knew that I'd missed it. And I knew that I'd missed it because I wasn't watching the movie with her. And what I think is fascinating is that watching a movie is supposed to be an individual experience until you're sharing it with somebody. And then watching the movie together becomes the activity that you're doing together so that you can share a moment and share an experience. And we weren't doing that because I wasn't fully present. One more example or one more hypothesis that I've got is that we're seeing like Zumba studios, yoga studios, cycling studios, dance studios, these group fitness classes just on an incredible rise across the country, across North America. I, yeah, yep. Spartan, like all of the Spartan races, pick, the, pick it. the yep. Iron Man thing that I just did. Yeah, 100%. I all of it. Yeah, I get it. think primary benefit is physical. I think the primary benefit is emotional because the first thing that we do before we start training, especially in a group class, especially indoors, is we take our phone, we put it in a locker, we get changed, and then for one full hour, distraction-free, we get to share an experience with someone, knowing that we aren't going to be interrupted, but probably more importantly, they aren't either. We can't do that at the dinner table. We can't do that at the boardroom. We can't do that at a walk in the park. It doesn't exist anymore. And so to answer your question, coming back in a roundabout way, I think the best way that we can connect on a deeper level with people is to give them, all of us, one thing at a time, to look them in the eyes and to let them know that I'm right here for you. Because when I look at how we connect on a psychological level. I look at like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for example, where at the base of this hierarchy of needs, we need food, shelter, water to survive. Got it. That's the, that's the basics. We've got that covered. Next is a sense of emotional, psychological, or physical safety. And then comes a sense of belonging and trust. But where, where, where I think this comes, or belongingness and love, but what, what I think we're missing is a sense of trust because we don't necessarily feel psychologically safe, because we don't necessarily feel fully supported. You know, if, if I'm a 10 year old and I remember, you know, and I'm at the park with, with my dad and he was on his phone, he's there, but he's not there. So I might not do something risky or something that, you know, might draw his attention because I might not trust that he's fully present. I might not feel fully psychologically safe. And so I think the answer is simple in that what you're doing by 
turning your phone on. Like to be clear, I haven't had my phone on vibrate or ring for I think two and a half years now, which means I've missed every call unless I happen to be looking at my phone. And, and I'm okay with that because the trade-off is greater for me to to be present at, during any conversation or any podcast recording or anything that I'm doing. It's more important to be present for what's in front of me than what's in my pocket. And we'll call back, and that's fine. But to be to 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 make sure that we've got a deeper relationship being built, I think first, if we want to have trust given back to us, we have to give it first. Can you explore this idea of trust a little bit more? Because I know that that's um, a big factor that I've heard a lot recently, especially in and around psychological safety, which is a critical element of building a healthy, high-performance team. Uh, workplaces that actually improve mental health rather than damage mental health. Uh, and I've heard you talk about this before. So I, I'd love your thoughts on trust, psychological safety, and building, you know, in addition to building connection, but building connection with with people in that context of, of trust and, and psychological safety. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just learning... I'm, I'm fascinated about the idea of trust and, you know, a bit of a spoiler, my, my podcast is being launched soon, primarily about discovering the root of trust and how to systematize it, which I don't even know if we want to systematize it, but just to better understand trust from other, other people's perspective. And what I found is that psychological safety is the ability to bring your full self to a situation without fear of repercussion, basically. Um, that only happens if you trust the person that you're talking to. And so what, when, I'm, when I'm talking to organizations, there's, there's this, a distinction that I want them to make because for so long, organizations have been phenomenal at building teams, right? We talk about this all the time or we hear about this all the time. We've got a, we've got a strong team and this comes from sport. But an example of team could be the 2015 Philadelphia 76ers, who were 10 and 72 and dead last in the NBA. They were a team because they were aligned in their skill set and they were aligned in what their mission was. Their mission was to win the Larry O'Brien. They were aligned in their skill set because, of course, they're professional basketball players. But at 10 and 72, they weren't all that functioning. <laughs> the coach wasn't all that happy with them and the players were, you know, part of a toxic environment. They were still a team. So one, one, one day after practice, the coach was looking around in the dressing room and what, what does he see? Well, of course he sees everyone's head hanging low, no energy. There's didn't even feel like there was a heartbeat in that dressing room. And as he looked around, he saw player after player just sulking depressed about what's been going on because they kept losing and losing and losing and losing. But then in the back right corner of the dressing room, he saw two of the players giggling, kind of poking each other, almost looked like they were having fun, which was really weird because they hadn't won a game in a long time. And you know how much these professional athletes they want to win. So he went over and just curious, he said, what's going on? One of the players pointed the other player's bag. He said, look, look at what's going on in there. He looked in the bag and sure enough, there was a rubber snake sitting in the bag. I said, what, what the hell is this? <laughs> he said, well, I found out that he hates snakes. So of course I had to throw a snake in his bag and to see what would happen. He said, well, when did you hear that he hated snakes? He said, well, you know, we were just talking about what was going on outside of basketball and somehow this came up. So I just take full advantage of it. He said, well, the coach got, was, was pretty intrigued. He said, interesting what happened when they got to know each other a little bit more outside of basketball. And so he implemented a policy, implemented a policy is a strong word. He implemented this practice where over the next three months, each player would give a 10 minute presentation about who they were off the court. And so they would work with marketing and the comms team of the 76ers and somebody would build the, the, the PowerPoint deck for them, but they would just talk through what they wanted to talk about. So over the three months, the players talked about anything from like NASCAR to snakes, of course, to the families that they grew up in or the families that they're building now. And they got to know each other a little bit more because they were focused on understanding something bigger than basketball. Fast forward two years, they made it to the second round of the playoffs. They did it again two years ago. They did it again last year, lost, of course, to the Toronto Raptors. But not all that much changed 
other than the fact that they weren't just a team anymore. They were a community. Their line was that when we trusted each other more off the court, we played better together on the court. And so I think that when we look at team, team is an, is an alignment of skill and desired outcome. But the shift that they made is they made, went, went from being a team to being a community. Now, a community will have alignment in the, the skill or the interest. They'll have alignment in the mission or, or the goal, but they'll also have each other's backs while they're doing it. They'll have a greater sense of trust because they'll have a greater knowledge of who that individual is. And when we bring this to the workplace, it's not just about the skills that we've got, the education that we've acquired, or the goal that we're trying to accomplish personally or professionally. It's about being in it as a community because not all teams are functioning. But when we look at a community that has each other's backs, I think that's when we can actually accomplish great things together. That's really interesting. And it appears that in that case, the Sixers were able to increase the level of trust simply by communication Mm -hmm. and understanding of the perspective of the other person. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment? The most important factor, though, is that they took the time to do it. (laughs) You know, I was talking to a a major uh, American utilities company um, last week, actually on, on Friday. And, um, I said, you know, can you tell me a little bit about an initiative that you're proud of lately and and why it works? And uh, the individual on the phone said, well, we're really increasing the percentage of females in our workforce. We're at 37% right now and climbing. And a few years ago, we were just a small fraction of that. And I said, well, congratulations, you know, and, and, I, and I mean that. That's, that's an incredible accomplishment, especially in utilities, which has been, you know, traditionally um, a, a male profession. I said, well, what was the biggest factor in enabling more women to be at the table, so to speak? And her answer, I loved it. Her answer was, we started paying attention. I said, whoa, that is simple and incredibly intricate and complicated at the same time. Because here's the thing. I've got a bit of a bone to pick with the word innovation. Innovation, I think, is another another buzzword that we we throw around a lot. Does it mean it's not important? No, it's absolutely important. But let's let's strip innovation back for a second. Innovation, in in my words, is the ability to act on creativity. Would you would you agree with that? Sorry, can you say that say that one more time? The, the uh, innovation is the ability to act on creativity. It's the it, it's it's the necessity okay. to do something different. Because if you and I spoke the same language, the same words, had the same marketing tactic, This like we're a carbon copy of each other, I would probably fail because you did it first. And there's nothing, there's nothing innovative about that. Okay. I think that innovation is a necessity because if we're a carbon copy of each other, we don't have a business. We just saturate the market. And so what I think is most important then is if we're acting on creativity, two things that happen there. Number one, we're acting on something but before the action comes the creation of that, what that action is going to be. So then we have to allow people to be creative. But the problem is, and we talked about this right at the start of the conversation, is we don't have the time and space to be creative. We don't have the time and space to pay attention. And so when we look at what the 76ers did, when we look at what this utilities company did, when we look at what you're doing with Ingrid, you're taking the time to pay attention to address whatever comes up at that time and acting on it. That's what creates psychological safety. That's what creates trust. And that's what enables us to build deeper relationships. So does creativity come before action or does action come before creativity? And the reason why I'm asking is this, I've been really trying to tease this out because I'm trying to evaluate moments when I'm creative and I'm trying to study other people who are hyper creative. And when does that actually occur? So let's take Michael Jordan playing basketball, for example. There's a very classic shot that he took where he went up into the air, someone went up to block him, and he switched hands and put it in with his left hand instead of the right hand that he was shooting with, or vice versa. I can't remember exactly. And that's a moment of pure creativity. But obviously, he's practiced that hundreds of thousands of times shot shooting right shooting left shooting right shooting left so that in the moment you can create something brand new so i've been trying to tease out should you take the time to be creative 
and let your mind ideate, let your mind wander, come up with new ideas, uh, and then execute? Or is it hustle, 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 practice, 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 and then leverage creativity to build upon that and come up with new ideas? So just a long-winded question, because that's what I've been trying to figure out over the last few weeks, actually. So I, I'm psyched to have this, to have you brought it up. One of the coolest stories, and I don't want to, I don't want to tell your story. I'd be interested in you sharing a, a short version of it. Is, is you talked about Jose Bautista uh, when he hit that ball out of the park uh, a couple years ago. Right. C- can you share with me again what it was that he said about what he saw in the pitcher's hand? Got it. So Jose Bautista, 2015 playoffs. Um, he's Blue Jays player uh, against the Texas Rangers, seventh inning, and game was tied, goes to the plate, and after he ends up hitting a home run to win the game, and probably one of the highlights of his career, if not the highlight of his career. But afterwards, when he was interviewed, they asked him you know, what was going on, and he basically said that when he walked to the plate, his adrenaline wasn't 10 out of 10, it was 10 million out of 10, and despite the fact that it was so loud, 50,000 people were going crazy, he said, I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't hear the crowd. It was so quiet. And then he said, all that I could see was the pitcher. He lost focus with the rest of the stadium. And then on the actual winning pitch, all that he could see was the pitcher's shoulder. And then when the ball came up over the pitcher's shoulder, all that he could see was the fingers on the ball. And he saw how the fingers were positioned. So he knew what pitch was coming and he was able to hit the home run. And the, the simple, you know, version of that is that as pressure increases, focus narrows. Uh, so that was probably one of the best instances I've seen of someone just you know, getting more focused, getting more focused, getting more focused, getting more focused, and then executing despite being under massive, massive, massive pressure. Mm-hmm. Is that not the exact same story as the one you shared about Michael Jordan? Probably yes. Now that I think about it, what I found, and uh, <laughs> this, this is this is one of the more impactful things that has happened in a long time, right this second. So I'm really glad we've got this recorded, that we've got listeners on the other end uh, taking this in with us. But I was watching uh, Christopher Robin with with Jillian, and one of the quotes that hit me, I had to stop the movie, rewind it, start it again, watch that one, and we did it one more time. But um, the line was that doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. Yeah. And 100%. that to me was so powerful that, okay, so let's take this back to work. Education, experience, years on the job, understanding failures and successes, being through the ringer, being on the roller coaster, being through everything that life gives us leads us to the point where we've got a pitch coming at us in the most important game of our life or where we're 36 inches in the air with the ball hanging in our hand and doing nothing often at those points when nothing else is in the way, when they're hyper-focused on one thing, doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. And I think that creativity happens in spaces of nothing, but we can't not consider the life that we've lived that led up to that moment of nothing. I see what you are saying, and I am a big believer that boredom yields ideation and creativity. And what you're, what I think that you're saying is those moments of nothing can be even one one hundredth of a second, where you have an opportunity where everything slows down, and you have space mentally. um, And even if it's unconscious space, because creativity often happens in the unconscious spaces, Mm -hmm. even when you're awake, that's, that's where you're, that's where you're taking me in this line of thinking. Right. Not to be confused with perpetual boredom either, but more like moments of supreme, even at times millisecond focus. I think if we try and create that space, then I think these moments of space will lead to the very best of something. 
all right, now I don't want to lose this because it, it always comes back to actions yeah. and what can people actually do. How in the moment do you create that space? And I feel like I've asked this before, but I want to ask it again because it's so important. And I've also heard that when you do that, this is from a gentleman uh, named Sadhguru that um, I've read some of his stuff. Uh, he's, he's got some really interesting insights. But one of the things that, that I learned from him was that when we create this space, it enables you to shift from reaction to response. And that the greater a space that you can create, the more likely it is that you're going to be able to control the outcome and do the right thing under pressure. And I was also chatting to another very good friend of mine, uh, Kevin Darby, who is a former uh, SWAT team member. And when, when I was talking to him about his previous work, uh, he's now an unbelievable therapist, incredible business uh, that he's developing around helping people be healthier through movement. But one of the things that he always said when he was in those moments is that they're trained to create space uh, in time and place. So you want to slow the slow things down and create space between you and someone else who's confrontational. And that if you can do that, create space uh, in terms of time and place, then quite often you can diffuse the situation. Mm, interesting. So there's a couple things to throw at you there to keep this going and try to, you know, spark actions that people can take to thread this into their lives. I guess the question that I would ask back is whatever it is that the individual is doing on the other end of, of this podcast is, is what is the action that you can take to create that space for me? And I would guess for you in many cases too, given that we're spending a lot of time on planes, you know, uh, behind computers, scribbling notes down before the next presentation is how can, how can you eliminate as many distractions or as much noise as possible? And, and for me, it's the same as you, it's turning all notifications off on everything so that nothing pops up nothing gets in the way and nothing pulls me out of whatever the task is at hand. The The second thing that I try and do is to ask myself as many questions as possible, like be my own devil's advocate in that if I can challenge my own perspective, then I think I can create space by trying to poke as many holes in the idea as possible. And, and then the third is uh, for, for me is to share that creative process with someone so that they can create space for you and you can help create space uh, for them. And I think that when we can start to challenge each other and then you know ask the question, have a pause, and then start to answer, um, that we can come up with some new ideas um, quite quickly. Love all of that. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the new book. The, the the one degree shift is is something that uh, I've I've thought of I've had sort of in the back of my mind for for a year now or 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 even a little bit longer and this idea around creating workplaces and in, in, in communities that that thrive is is really important to me because I, I still see that workplace dissatisfaction is on the rise that tenure is not getting any longer we're looking at between 18 and 36 months at work we're seeing now that the average person coming out of uh, high school will have 13 jobs by the time they're 40 we're looking at this artificially intelligent revolution coming into play now and, and i just see that there's too much fear about the future of work and not as much optimism or, or excitement as i'd like to see um I think we often fail to realize the innovation that got us to where we are today and how the world in, in some ways, you know, I don't want to discount some of the horrors that are happening around the world too, but in some ways the quality of life that we're living now has never been greater and, and sure there will always be things to work on. But when I look at the future of work and everything that's happening as we move forward, I still think that what's coming next, if we're intentional about the future that we want to build is incredibly empowering, absolutely exciting. And something that I want everyone to be able to feel in control of. Love it. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more when it comes to the, the future. I'm so excited. I think there's so much opportunity not to belittle in any way some people that are uh, struggling right now who don't have all of the opportunities that uh, they probably deserve. But the opportunities that exist for all of us in this era of massive technological mm -hmm. change, uh, a billion people coming online in a very short 
time frame that's going to be happening around the world, the potential of global connectivity through satellite mm -hmm. networks. Like there's literally unlimited potential right now. Uh, and again, not to minimize the fact that not everybody has access to that and some people are still struggling and there's people all over the planet that mm -hmm. need help uh, that need to you know, be, be lifted out of poverty, et cetera. But I, I, I'm super psyched. And so I'm, I'm glad that you're, that you're covering yeah, that, especially the, because in this, the, the big... Go, go ahead. The, don't let me, real, don't let me real, stop real, you. Go, real go. quick, <laughs> I'll say too, is that, you know, are you where you thought you were going to be 10 years ago? Oh my God, right. And no. every time I answer that, even, even five, uh, even like three, three right? it's just yeah. so funny. Um, that's what this book is about because we're so good at drawing up these 10 year plans, these five year plans uh, at, at building these vision boards of where we want to be. And I think the biggest problem with a 10 year goal is the lesson that we choose to ignore one month into it because it doesn't fit the plan. And so this one degree shift book is about making course corrections, about micro adjustments, about intentional decision making to get us to where we want to go based on who we've become, not who we were when we set that goal 10 years ago. So because my, my theory is that success is an inevitability. So long as we keep moving forward, we keep learning and we keep pivoting. I kind of like to compare life to a, a bowling alley with bumpers on either side. And we're just that bowling ball kind of bumping our way down the lane, you know, we're, we're going to knock pins down if we keep moving forward. And I think that what we, you know, it, it's funny that what we call people that aren't moving forward or aren't progressing or aren't feeling that le level of fulfillment, you know, <laughs> perhaps ironically, we call them stuck. And the best way to get unstuck is to start moving again, is to just take action and to make that one degree shift, something that's not a big turbulent change, but it's not standing still either. And I think with enough intentional one degree shifts, we get to not necessarily where we thought we were going to go, but absolutely to where we're going to be going. 10 years ago, if you told me that I'm going to be doing what I am today, I, I don't even think that I would have understood what you were talking about. <laughs> and uh, like literally, I, 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 it's just so far removed from my, my world 10 years ago. Um, five years ago, I might have had an inkling. And I think mm -hmm. three years ago, I kind of made an intentional shift to go in this direction but you are it, it was in hindsight now that i think about it like an ongoing series of shifts in learning and steps that over that 10-year period have now landed me in a very cool amazing fun interesting interesting place but there's no question it felt like being you know, slammed into a wall on, you mm -hmm. know, from side to side, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. those bumpers, right? Like that. And so it's hard to see the fact that you're going to knock down a pin as you're being, you know, rammed into a wall uh, periodically throughout the course of that, that time. Yeah. But then too, you, you trust the process, right? It's, it's right. less about the outcome and more about the process. I love the line where life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. Every time you get smashed against the wall, you can choose to stop or you can choose to learn and keep moving forward. This idea of, of failure, especially like, you know, modern failure, I, I, I don't I can't quite grasp because failure only really occurs when you stop moving forward. If you continue to move forward, it should just be called learning. I mean, that's what it's called in school. <laughs> that's what it's called everywhere else in yeah. life. Failure only really is realized when we stop moving forward. The rest has to be considered learning. And if we're talking about lifelong learning now in a personal or a professional sense, then it's not like failure shouldn't really even be in the vocabulary. No, I, unless you're failing, you're not learning. It's impossible to learn unless you fail. It's impossible to learn. It's, they, it's, it, it's almost like semantics at that point. They go, they, they are the same. It's just a different perspective. I mean, look, uh, you know, I did a 50 kilometer or attempted a 50 kilometer trail run you know, and had food poisoning all the week before I tried it and uh, ended up having to drop out, which is, you know, why I'm relating to you on this, on this last um, Ironman and it hurt. And man, I learned a lot. And I'll tell you when I did my half iron um, a month later, I beat my time by 47 minutes from last year, which is pretty significant on a half iron, but it wouldn't have happened had I not, I'll put in air quotes, failed that run before because I didn't value the importance of nutrition enough um, to be able to take full advantage of it on the next race. 
Yeah. And I'm just looking something up right now. So I got a Lisa Bentley is here too. And she's pretty incredible. I've had her on, on the podcast and you know, what she, what she messaged me this morning is that everything happens for a reason. If we don't understand it at the time, uh, you know, I'm sure you made the, the tough heart wrenching, but necessary decision. And then, you know, be kind to yourself. And this is, this is for life. Basically, I think mm-hmm. what her point being is that like, you're now figuring out how to move forwards. And, uh, yeah, definitely no question did absolutely fail yesterday on a whole ton of different levels. Uh, but already today I'm thinking and trying to process how to move forwards and how to make sure it doesn't happen again, or that I'm more effective in achieving what I want to do next time. And may, you know what, maybe this is setting me up to be able to do, um, Aconcagua, that, that climb that we're talking about safely, because I'll be better prepared with a better mindset. And, um, yeah, so as long as it, as long as we keep moving forwards, as long as we keep making progress, as long as you keep learning, then so many things become become possible yeah it's funny what's coming to mind is that like life happened yesterday right it just happened and or or saturday life continues to happen today too and however it is you choose to move forward is the right way so long as you keep moving forward yeah and it was yesterday and um life is continuing today my kids are looking at me and they're like we got to go to the ride so <laughs> i gotta yeah. be respectful of your time and respectful of um of my kids time as well i think we could easily do uh a part two of this because we sort of skimmed the surface of a whole ton of really amazing topics uh so if people want to follow you and check you out what's the best way for them to do that yeah um linkedin is my primary social media just eric Tremundi. um i'm sure you'll have show notes so i won't go into the spelling um my website as well of course is is, is a great place to start and um feel free to reach out I'm, i i love these conversations so dr wells thanks for for having me be a part of it i'm incredibly grateful to be a part of your journey and, and watching you thrive the way that you do and um excited to see what comes next for you Thanks, buddy. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm psyched that we're uh, we're able to connect and take some time on this, and you know, at at various different events. So, uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Good luck with the new book. Good luck with the podcast, and keep doing all of your amazing work. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you joining me for this episode of the podcast. Your time is incredibly valuable and spending it with me is just mind blowing. I I thank you so much for doing that. It's great. If you want to support the show, if you enjoyed that segment and you want more, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and on Google Play. That makes a huge difference for us. And then also, if you can let me know what you think. All of my social media are at Dr. Greg Wells. And of course, if you can share this with anyone in your network, it would be greatly appreciated as well. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And we'll speak to you again really, really soon.